Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's bit.ly, slash perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining me. This is a public domain radio episode of social yeah public domain radio <laughs> and i don't edit it uh so welcome <laughs> to social distancing radio this is another episode in the public domain radio series go ahead and introduce yourself hi my name is jean marie ward i write fiction nonfiction, and everything in between my uh first novel written with late terry smith called with nine you get vanner was a um, multi-award finalist in the Independent uh, Novels Awards. And uh, my short stories have appeared everywhere from Asimov's to the anthologies of Zombies Need Brains. And if you, if that interests you, you can find me at jeanmarieward.com. Great. Thank you. So, as usual with the Public Domain Radio series episode, you're going to read one thing that is public domain and one thing that is your own work in whatever order you prefer, what are you going to be reading first? Okay. I'm going to start out with the public domain piece. Uh, it's going to be Scaramouche by an Italian English novelist. Uh, he first language Italian, but he wrote in English and he wrote brilliantly Raphael Sabatini and Scaramouche is possibly his greatest novel. It is a historical novel set in and around the French Revolution about a lawyer, talk about weird heroes, named uh, <laughs> André-Louis Moreau. And André-Louis Moreau is a lawyer who becomes the greatest fencer in all of France. And there's action, adventure, romance, killing, and a ton of daddy issues. <laughs> Also, on a slightly more serious note, the concepts described in Scaramouche uh, predate the uh, discussions and creation of existential philosophy. Sabatini wasn't thinking about that when he wrote it, but he, the novel itself perfectly encapsulates the idea that we live in an absurd world and only the insane are fit for it. So, let me Interesting. Get yeah, it's, it's a great book. All right, let me, let me get started. Go for it. Yeah, Scaramouche, chapter one. He was born with a gift of laughter and a sense that the world was mad. And that was all his patrimony. His very paternity was obscure although the village of Gavriac had long since dispelled the cloud of mystery that hung over it. 
Those simple Brittany folk were not so simple as to be deceived by a pretended relationship, which did not even possess the virtue of originality. When a nobleman, for no apparent reason, announces himself the godfather of an infant fetched no man knew whence, and thereafter cares for the lad's rearing and education, the most unsophisticated of country folk perfectly understand the situation. And so the, get, the good people of Gavriac permitted themselves no illusions on the score of the real relationship between André-Louis Moreau, as the lad had been named, and Quintan de Kerkadou, Lord of Gavriac, who dwelt in the big gray house that dominated from its eminence, the village clustering below. André-Louis had learned his letters at the village school, lodged the, the while with old Rabouillet, the attorney, who in the capacity of fiscal intendant looked after the affairs of Monsieur de Cucadou. Thereafter, at the age of 15, he had been packed off to Paris, to the Lycee of Louis Le Grand, to study the law which he was now returned to practice in conjunction with Rabouillet. All this at the charges of his godfather, Monsieur de Kerkadou, who by placing him once more under the tutelage of Rabouillet, would seem thereby quite clearly to be making provision for his future. André Louis on his side had made the most of his opportunities. You behold him at the age of four and 20, stuffed with learning enough to produce an intellectual indigestion in an ordinary <laughs> mind. Out of his zestful study of man from Thucydides to the Encyclopedeist, from Seneca to Rousseau, he had confirmed into an unassailable conviction his earliest conscious impressions of the general insanity of his own species. Nor can I discover that anything in his eventful life ever afterwards caused him to waver in that opinion. In body, he was a slight wisp of a fellow, scarcely above middle height, with a lean, astute countenance, prominent of nose and cheekbones, and with lank black hair that reached almost to his shoulders. His mouth was long, thin-lipped, and humorous. He was only just redeemed from ugliness by the splendor of a pair of ever-questing luminous eyes, so dark as to be almost black. Of the whimsical quality of his mind and his rare gift of graceful expression, his writings, unfortunately but too scanty, and particularly his confessions, afford us very ample evidence. Of his gift of oratory, he was hardly conscious yet, although he had already achieved a certain fame for it in the literary chamber of Rennes, one of those clubs by now ubiquitous in the land, in which the intellectual youth of France foregathered to study and discuss the new philosophies that were permeating social life. But the fame he had acquired there was hardly enviable. He was too impish, too caustic too much disposed, so thought his colleagues, to ridicule their sublime theories for the regeneration of mankind. Himself, he protested that he merely held them up to the mirror of truth and that it was not his fault if when reflected, they looked ridiculous. All that he achieved by this was to exasperate and his expulsion uh, from the society grown mistrustful of him must already have followed, but for his friend, Philippe de Valmoran, a divinity student of Rennes, who himself was one of the most popular members of the literary chamber. Coming to Gavriac on a November evening, November morning, 
Laden with news of the political storms which were then gathering over France, Philippe found in that sleepy Breton village matter to quicken his already lively indignation. A peasant of Gavriac named Mabé had been shot dead that morning in the woods of Mupont, across the river, by a gamekeeper of the Marquis de la Tour de Gier. The unfortunate fellow had been caught in the act of taking a pheasant from a snare, and the gamekeeper had acted under explicit orders from his master. Infuriated by an act of tyranny so absolute and merciless, Monsieur de Valmarin proposed to lay the matter before Monsieur de Kerkadou. Mabé was a vassal of Gavriac, and Valmarin hoped to move the Lord of Gavriac to demand at least some measure of reputation for the widow and the three orphans which the brutal deed had made. But because André Louis was Philippe's dearest friend, indeed his almost brother, the young seminarist sought him out in the first instance. He found him at breakfast, alone in the long, low-ceilinged, white-paneled dining room at Rabouillet's, the only home that André Louis had ever known, and after embracing him, deafened, with, deafened him with his denunciation of Monsieur de la Tour de Gier. I have heard it already, said André Louis. You speak of the thing as if it not, did not surprise you, his friend reproached him. Nothing beastly can surprise me when done by a beast, and la Tour de Gier is a beast, as all the world knows. The more fool Mabé for stealing his pheasants. He should have stolen somebody else's. <laughs> is that all you have to say about it? What more is there to say? I've a practical mind, I hope. What more there is to say, I presume to say to your godfather, Monsieur de, de Kerkadou, I shall appeal to him for justice. Against Monsieur de la Tour de Gire? André Louis raised his eyebrows. Why not? My dear... My dear ingenuous, Philippe, dog does not eat dog. You are unjust to your godfather. He is a humane man. Oh, as humane as you please. But this isn't a question of humanity. It's a question of game laws. Monsieur de Valmorin tossed his long arms in he to heaven in disgust. He was a tall, slender young gentleman, a year or two younger than André Louis. He was very soberly dressed in black as became a seminarist with white bands at his wrist and throat and silver buckles to his shoes. His neatly clubbed brown hair was innocent of powder. You talk like a lawyer, he exploded. Naturally, I am a lawyer, but don't waste anger on me on that account. Tell me what you want me to do. And what uh, Philippe wants uh, Andre uh, Louis to do and how it all turns out, and when the first murder comes, and there are a lot of murders, and when the country erupts into violence, well, you're going to have to read the rest of the book to find that out. And it's a big book. If you like fantasies that are thick and rich with historical detail, this is the book for you. Uh, Sabatini was great on historical detail. I mean, I, was, I mentioned in, when we started that this was a book that was very um, important to me as a writer. In fact, all of Sabatini was because of the lessons he taught in how to write historical fiction. Mm. I mean, he did not take it for granted that um, one source, even something as 
esteemed as, say, the Encyclopedia Britannica, which was available to him when he wrote at the beginning of the 20th century, was the be-all and end-all. He believed that in order to write historical fiction, you couldn't rely on secondary sources. Now, remember, I'm reading him in high school and in the summer before college. So this was like a revelation. What do you mean all the stuff that your teachers were telling you to look at to research your papers wasn't adequate? No, Sabatini wanted to go to journals and letters and other sources that were contemporary. What my college teachers and my husband's uh, professors when he was in graduate school for late antique and early medieval history called primary sources. And you had to compare them because every writer has a bias. And this, this stayed with me. Uh, and apparently he influenced either directly or indirectly a number of uh, very good historical writers who, who basically dove into history and you know, never came out again. <laughs> uh, I, I don't always write historical fiction, but it was, it was good training to be a researcher in anything. And uh, when later I started my career as a reporter, you know, go to the sources, go to more than one source, at, consider their biases. This is all something you have to do to think critically. Now, fast forward too many years, and I um, started writing fiction, and some of the fictions wound up being historical. And uh, so in the mid-teens, I got an opportunity to write a story for a collection called uh, Tales from the Vatican Vaults, which was a secret history collection. In other words, you were supposed to get the history right, but figure out how magic played a role. Nice. Since, yeah, and since this was a English anthology, being perverse, I decided to write about America. <laughs> and I decided not only to write about America, I decided to write about the black servants in the White House of President and Dolly Madison on the day they burned Washington. Ooh. Okay, well, I had come across when I was going, what do I write? What do I write? <laughs> um, I come across a brochure, a travel brochure that mentioned there were two hurricanes within 24 hours that chased the British out of Washington. And that to me said, okay, magic. But getting the, the events to line up was... I mean, the standard histories of the period, the discussions of the life of Dolly Madison, just took leading chunks and just sort of mushed over this. So I wound up buying several books. I had already bought one of them, but I bought a couple more that were letters of people who were there or had large bleeding chunks that were letters out of people that were people who were there. And then only by those letters, which were not only dated, but after the fashion of the time, timed. Oh. I put together a chronology, which if I had not followed Sabatini's instructions, never would have known to do it. And my history, A, the story would have been much poorer, and my history would have been all wrong. 
So that's the second piece I'm going to be reading from. It is very different, both in, in tone and in language from Sabatini. But it wouldn't have been written without him. Oh, I'm so excited about this. <laughs> so let me start then. Let me get to the, um, the piece. The piece is called Cooking Up a Storm. And it is from the uh, Tales from the Vatican Vaults, which was published by Constable and Robertson five years ago. As far as I know, it's still in print. Cooking Up a Storm. Mama was conjure woman. I know what you're thinking. Conjure, gree voodoo. They're nothing but heathen superstition. I would have said the same until that dreadful scorching day, the 24th of August in the year of our Lord, 1814. Mr. President Madison's freedman thundered up the drive to the White House steps. His face was gray with road dust. His chest heaved like his poor lathered horse. Clear out, clear out, he shouted. General Armstrong is ordered to retreat. I scathered in my belly, for all I'd been sweating like onions in a pan not moments before. Mama warned me the British were coming. She said her spirit showed her Washington city burning. I hadn't believed her. I dismissed everything her spirit said as an act of faith. Besides, everybody from Mr. President Madison to the Congress to all our generals said our militia would stop those British before they even got close. A part of me disbelieved it still. How could her dire foretelling come to pass with the sun shining overhead and the sky so clear and blue? There should be a storm, a blast of trumpets from on high, but the only sounds were the whimpers of the house girls standing around me. Mrs. President Dolly Madison paled under her rouge, hand to her throat, she turned to scowl at Mama, who like always stood apart from the rest of the servants and slaves. Mama didn't cringe and fright or hike her chin defiant-like. She appeared as calm as still waters. You'd have thought the prospect of the British capturing the town and torching it like we had the Parliament buildings in Canada troubled her not at all. The notion that maybe she did know something, something the rest of us were too staggered to see, gave me a trickle of hope. Not so, Miss Dolly. Her glare just about crackled. Her bosom strained against her old gray house dress as she filled her lungs for a proper scolding. But before she could open her mouth, the president's master of ceremonies, John Suset, leaned over her shoulder. The British will not attempt a forced march in this heat. They will take hours to reach the city. Plenty of time to lay a trap. His voice sounded huskier than usual. His accent was thicker, thicker too. We can spike the cannons at the gate and lay a trail of powder to the house. That would kill a hundred men and injure far more. Miss Dolly gasped. Her headshake turned to a shudder. They'd be blown to pieces. No, I won't have it. It's too horrible. French John lifted a dark eyebrow. It is war. War. Here. Now. French John knew war. He'd served four years in the French Navy and still wore his hair tied back in a sailor's queue. In the time it had taken the rest of us to gather on the North Steps, he'd found himself a pistol to shove between the buttons of his vest and a sword to strap to his hip. His fine blue coat dragged from his shoulders. 
its pockets strained. The bulge in the one closest to me matched the shape of Mr. President Madison's fold and razor. French John had always been so particular about his appearance. He'd never risk staining his vest with oil and powder or spoil his coat unless it was an emergency, unless Mama was right. My heart raised, but I couldn't move. I didn't know what to do. Nothing in my life had prepared me for this. I don't care, Miss Dolly said. Even in war, some advantages may never be taken. There are lines civilized people cannot cross. If we do not take advantage, Madame, of a certainty, the British will. They have promised to destroy the president's palace and all the departments supporting the war. What could be more just, more civilized than destroying them in the act? You forget yourself, Mr. Suzay. I am mistress here, and as long as I remain lady president, the president's house will not be made into a bomb. I sucked my lip between my teeth. Even the crying girls fell silent. Miss Dolly was mistress of the house, but French John was no servant. He was free, white, and as official as the president's secretary saying he forgot himself with respect to her was as good as a slap to the face. Men do for less. Miss Dolly's eyes widened as she realized what she'd done. I expected her to apologize, but she stood her ground, daring him to object. I held my breath, terrified of what the master of ceremonies might do. Ooh. Oh, that's so good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If, if uh, your reader, if your view, <laughs> your viewers, your listeners like it too, they can find it in uh, Tales from the Vatican Vaults. Um, it comes out from Constable and Robertson, which I believe is a Hache uh, HarperCollins colony, uh, company, and it's still in Amazon. So, yeah, it's a big, thick book, and you've got people like the late Storm Constantine Ooh. and um, uh, Christine Catherine Rush, award winner Dave Hutchinson, um, the late um, John Grant, and really a great, uh, a great list of people. And my story is in there, and it's, it's a novella. It's kind of long. I think I, I, I learned that from Sabatini, too. But by the <laughs> way, most of oh, most of the dialogue from Suset and Dolly Madison are straight from the letters that she wrote that other people wrote. Yes, she recorded uh, her experiences and uh, Paul Jennings, a slave in the White House who's referenced in here, recorded his experiences. It was Paul and um, uh, John Suset who took down the, uh, the big picture of George Washington, which is also referenced in the story and made sure it got out of town. Wow. So, yeah. Uh, it, and I owe it all to Sabatini. And another thing that is impressive about your story and about Sabatini's is that it's a historical piece. These are historical fiction pieces, but the characters in them speak so naturally. And I, I think that it's lesser historical fiction tries to sort of like fancify the language of people and forgets that they just talked like people, you know, mm -hmm. there's a, a, that your dialogue could show up in, in an, any sort of political drama or, or primetime drama now, mm 
you know, because it is the way that people speak. And Sabatini's dialogue has the same sort of sass of, you know, a Boston legal, you know, or something like that. And it, it, it's, I mean, it's set, you know, it, it's constructed in a way that's appropriate to the time, but you can feel the emotion behind it. The language isn't like stripped of and sanitized of the emotion by virtue of being, you know, consigned to the dusty pages of history. Oh yeah. No, his, his dialogue, you want to get a really good example of his dialogue. Uh, Sabatini wrote a lot of bestsellers. Scaramouche is the best regarded, but the one that is most loved, the one that has been made into movies several times, but only once that's really worth it is Captain Blood. Really? The Errol Flynn movie, most of the dialogue and some of the exposition comes straight out of Captain Blood and Captain Blood. And Warner Brothers was the studio of dialogue. They had the best writer, dialogue writers in the business. They had the Epstein brothers. They had, uh, they had uh, John Huston grabbing whole swatches of uh, Dashiell Hammett's, the, um, the Maltese Falcon, and just stripping it on the page because it was, you couldn't get any better than that dialogue. And the dialogue they used for Captain Blood came straight from Captain Blood. And you want to hear somebody say lines like they can be said anytime. Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland charging through this 17th century pirate thing and saying it just as if, yeah, it's, it's amazing. So he's, you know, I stumbled over it because I've only had a chance to rehearse it about three times. <laughs> And, you know, not like my own piece. I know my own piece inside out. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the, that is, it does not sound stilted. It, it reads like once he gets going, once he gives you the background, which takes a while because, you know, most people, even in the early 20th century, knew very little about the actual French Revolution. Mm -hmm. They knew French Revolution bad, just the same way we knew Communist revolution, bad. They didn't know how or what is happening to cause this. And, but once he gets past that, once he starts having people talk to each other, like, he's a beast. Well, yes, he's a beast. <laughs> you know, what, you've got to do something. What do you want me to do? It, my, dear, my dear friend, it's not just a matter of murder. It's a question of game laws. I'm a lawyer. Hello? Uh, you know, yeah, it's so real. It's so um, alive, so vibrant. Yes. So, yeah, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm a fan. <laughs> yeah, understandably. And you, you convey that very well. Um, so where can people find you? Tell us again. Okay. Uh, if you want to find me, I'm at jeanmarieward.com. Uh, and if you want to find me on panels in the absence of uh, live in-person cons. You can check out uh, Continual Convention, the convention that never ends at facebook.com slash groups slash continual, C-O-N-T-I-N-U-A-L. So, yeah. But, yeah, but me, just me, jeanmarieward.com. And I'll link to both of those in the show notes so that Thank if anybody you. is listening to this and does not already know about Continual, then they can get that link from there. Okay, great. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for doing this. 
Thank you for having me, Michael. And oh, it was fun. This is such a delight. Thank you. Well, I will see you next time or well, I'll, I'll see you the next time we do a continual panel and, uh, <laughs> and I'll, I'll talk to you hopefully in person sometime before terribly long. Yes. Yes. Me yeah. too. Fingers crossed. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution License at ccmixter.org.